It's history. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. It's hardcore history. I want to take you on a trip to outer space. Imagine, if you will, that we're in a spaceship and that we're traveling away from the planet Earth, away from our solar system, out into the unknown, farther away from every landmark we can relate to. And as we continue on, into the unknown, eventually we encounter an alien race, a fearsome people, a group of beings that makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. They're very strange looking, semi-humanoid-ish, squat, bow-legged, very misshapen heads that seem to have a human shape, but whose skulls are elongated behind their head. Faces that look strangely scarred. Eyes that are but slits in their face. Flat, wide noses. If this weren't enough to shake you, they have tattoos all over themselves sometimes. Strange designs that they have put on their hands and arms and sometimes even their faces. What hair that they have on the top of their head is cut into strange designs. There are piercings sometimes in their ears and in other places. This alien race is bloodthirsty and brutal. They drink the blood of their adversaries. They take their scalps, they cut their heads off and keep them, sometimes making drinking cups out of them. They ride these strange creatures and when they're on their backs, they appear to be almost a single being. They are so connected with that other entity. And they have weapons that can kill from enormous distances. And they're amazingly skilled with them. Now you know what the Romans must have felt like when they first encountered the Huns. The Huns, of course, a people that emerged out of the steppe region of the world in a period right before the Dark Ages, just before the Roman Empire fell. And to the Romans fighting them, these Asiatic nomad warriors were as different and shocking to them as running into a Martian or Vulcan or Klingon would be to us. And I've always been a science fiction fan. Since I was a little child, I would read these novels that focused on the interplay between Earthlings and these 
alien cultures. I always liked to watch how they would react to each other. But as I got older and studied more history, I started to realize that this clash of alien cultures is something that you don't have to go to outer space to see. It happened in human history all the time. As a matter of fact, one of the things that makes me somewhat jealous of our ancestors is that they had the chance to run into alien peoples here on the planet Earth many more times than we're ever going to have that opportunity. Occasionally, researchers and scientists will discover some previously unknown tribe in the middle of some rainforest somewhere, but by and large, the experiences of running into new peoples here on the planet Earth is a an experience that we won't have anymore. But imagine how it must have been to be a Spanish conquistador landing in the New World for the first time in the Americas, and how much the inhabitants here must have seemed like aliens to them, or how much the Spanish conquistadores must have seemed like aliens to the natives. You could say the same thing about the Vikings landing in the New World in the time of Leif Erikson. To the natives here in the Americas, the Vikings must have been like Vulcans, and to the Vikings, the natives, the Skraelings as they called them, must have seemed like Klingons. So this idea of a clash of alien cultures, which has always interested me, has been a part of human history since the beginning. In addition, I have always had a love of tribal peoples and the tribal stage of human development. In my younger days, that meant a fascination with the Native American peoples, the Indians as we call them. But again, as I got older, it dawned on me, as I'm sure it's dawned on many of you, that you don't have to be in love with one of these recent tribal cultures to appreciate tribalism because we all have a tribal past, don't we? You go far enough back into your DNA and there are hints of memories of dressing in war paint and wearing skins and using bows and arrows and living in tents or teepees or wiki-ups or caves. So you don't have to be fascinated with a modern tribal people to have a connection to our collective tribal past, I guess you could say. Well, when you mix this fascination with the clash of alien cultures that I have and this love of tribalism, it shouldn't be a surprise that I have always been interested in the people of the Eurasian steppe. From the very first time I encountered them, I have been obsessed, you could almost say, with their history. And of course, when we talk about the Eurasian steppe, that is that major geographical feature that is about 5,000 miles long, mostly grasslands. I believe it's the largest region of grassland on the planet. Stretches from Eastern Europe, you could probably say it starts on the Hungarian plain, 5,000 miles eastward, all the way to the borders of China. And as I said, mostly flat, mostly grasslands, broken up by some hilly regions. There are a few forested regions. There are some mountain ranges and some craggy areas. But by and large, if you were to compare it 
to the American prairie, you would not be that far wrong. And the people in that region, as was common with all pre-modern people, were fantastically adapted to their environment. And their environment was a harsh one. The steppe is not an easy place to live. The winds howl across it. The ancient writers said that it's winter eight months of the year and the other four months it's blazing heat. And yet in the same way that the people in the Amazon rainforest were completely connected to their environment, they knew the flora, they knew the fauna, they understood their connection to where they lived because to not understand it meant you would die out. The people of the steppe developed a culture in prehistory, really, that was so successfully adapted to their environment that it changed remarkably little up until modern times. You could walk into a Scythian encampment, Scythians were a steppe tribe, back in 500 BC, and it would be remarkably like a Hunnic camp in 400 AD, which would be remarkably like a Mongol camp in 1300 AD. There's that old line, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And what the Scythians were doing in 500 BC wasn't broke, and they never fixed it until modern times. Matter of fact, if you go to the region right now, there are still things they do that the Scythians did because it was in harmony with that environment that was so harsh that if you weren't in harmony with it, you weren't around very long. Now, if you think of the region of the steppe today, it seems like a backwater on the world stage, like you're in the hinterlands. But for almost all of human history, that area was a major player on the world stage. A very important region. Last two or three hundred years, nothing. What accounts for that? I mean, here you have a region of the world that's like a volcano in human history that would periodically erupt and unleash new and terrifying alien peoples to challenge the settled societies around the steppe. And yet, there have been no aliens emerging from the steppe for a couple hundred years. Why? And when we talk about the peoples of the steppe, let's understand that there are some things that unite all the peoples of that region, and that would be the culture that we talked about a minute ago. And yet, under this umbrella of the steppe culture, existed a dizzying array of tribes and ethnicities that lived a lot alike, but may have looked and appeared very different in their features, hair color, eye color, skin color, height, that kind of thing. Because when you think of that area of the world, especially, let's just say, the border with China, what sort of ethnicity would you imagine in ancient times that these tribes of pastoral nomads who lived on the border of China would look like. You would probably think that they were Asian. Common sense would dictate you're over in Asia. 
probably these Asian nomads, or maybe Turkic, or maybe Middle Eastern. But the Chinese chroniclers are very clear that some of the tribes of pastoral herdsmen who lived on the borders of China in ancient times were Caucasian. The Chinese write about tall people, sometimes red-haired people, sometimes blue or green-eyed. Obviously talking about Caucasians, but these peoples were as alien to the Chinese chroniclers as the Asian Huns were to those Romans in 400 AD. And it reminds us something that is easy to forget about the peoples of the planet, and that's that human beings move. That the locations of tribes and peoples and ethnic groups is not what it always was. Just ask the Aboriginal peoples in Australia, the peoples who live in Siberia now, or the Native Americans in the Americas. So when we remember that peoples move, it's not that hard then to envision that once upon a time there were white people living on the borders of China. Genghis Khan, the famous Mongol conqueror, who everyone would identify as an Asian if you went and did a public opinion survey, had red hair, not known widely, may have had green eyes. Again, the ethnicity of the steppe was more diverse than you can imagine. They still had this culture that connected them, but the race and ethnicity of these people was varied. There's a famous National Geographic magazine cover. I believe it came out in the 1970s. It's a picture of an Afghani girl. She's staring at the camera. She has all the typical Middle Eastern features you would expect from a person in that region. Dark hair, dark skin. But she's got the greenest eyes you ever saw. It's what makes that photograph striking. And I remember when looking at it that my first thought was, well, here's somebody who's got some of that step DNA running strongly in their veins. It's fascinating to think that in earlier times, that striking Afghani girl was more common than now. You'd never put her on the cover of a National Geographic five, six, seven hundred years ago because she wasn't that uncommon back then. Not only that, but these tribes of steppe nomads had a way of incorporating the tribes that they defeated. There would be a war maybe between steppe tribes and the defeated tribe would then be incorporated and absorbed by the victorious tribe. They would intermarry and you would get these most interesting combinations of human ethnicities and races. Was not uncommon to find in one tribe Turkic peoples, Mongolian peoples, and Indo-European Caucasian peoples. In one tomb that they opened, the tomb contained the prince of a steppe tribe, and they found him, and he's obviously of a Mongolian type. He was buried with his queen, who would pass for a Swede. Blonde hair, Nordic, head shape, tall, 
And of course, they were intermarrying and creating new peoples and ethnic combinations that are dizzying in the variation that you can run into. Even the Turks from ancient times, the Turks being a steppe people, were said to have blonde hair sometimes. I plan on doing future shows that will focus in on some of the more important of these steppe cultures. But in this show, I wanted to muse a bit about the culture of the steppe and the way it seemed to almost be a, a petri dish in a laboratory germinating ever new people to impact the rest of the world. Now, if we're going to do this, the first thing that we have to acknowledge is a bias in most of the written sources. Before we even go down this studying the culture and people of the steppe, understand that most of them didn't write. And so we don't have the point of view of the steppe people. What we have are the writings of the people who hated their guts, who feared them, who were appalled by them, who saw them as aliens and subhuman. In addition, there's all sorts of new information coming out of Russia and China that was not available to us 20 years ago. When I first started studying the steppe peoples, you could read 15 or 20 books and call yourself relatively educated on them. Nowadays, the information coming out of the historic neighbors of the steppe people are so much more detailed and varied that it's much harder to know what you're talking about in detail about these peoples. Fascinating stuff out of the Russian and Chinese archives. First of all, let's talk a little about this culture that all these different ethnicities and people shared on the steppe. As I said, they're pastoral nomads. They went from place to place. Every now and then you would find some of these tribes in a semi-settled state. But most of them moved around. They had wagons that they kept their families in, and they would go from place to place. Their diet consisted mainly of meat and milk. They kept with them herds of goats and sheep and horses and various other creatures, sometimes camels. And this provided much of the building block for their lives. They lived in felt tents often. You may have heard the term yurt before. Well, a yurt is a steppe nomad house. They used to put them on the backs of their horses and take them from place to place and set them up again when they found new grazing ground. Now, there was a lot of trade between the peoples of the steppe, these nomads, and the settled societies around them, whether it's European societies, Middle Eastern societies, Indian societies, or Chinese societies. There was often interplay because the steppe could provide things like furs and amber and wax, and there was always stuff they needed from the settled societies. So trade was a normal part of the interaction between, we'll call them settled societies and these nomads. Now, there were two things that nomad society rested on. And you cannot understand these fascinating people without understanding these two things. One was the horse. Sometime around 1000 BC, it's thought, but that's in dispute, the peoples in the steppe got a hold of horses and figured out how to ride them. Now, that's not as easy as it sounds, because horses were not 
bred to be ridden, and it takes a certain kind of creature to bear the weight of a man on its back. One of the reasons that chariots came before horsemen was because the horses were not big enough to be ridden all the time with a man on their back. But eventually, these nomads of Eurasia, some of them anyway, figure out how to ride these horses, and that's when they appear on the world stage. The Chinese have historical records that go back before the steppe nomads that they were close to had horses, and they were relatively insignificant as neighbors. The Chinese have records about nomads that they call the um, Ti and the Rung, I believe. And the records talk about armies of footmen that are sometimes minor nuisances, but nothing major. But once those nomads alongside China get a hold of the horse, they become a major threat, a major force. The Chinese start writing about them intently from that moment on. And these pastoral people were the best horsemen the world has ever seen. And that's something we need to talk about for a minute. Because you will never, ever see anything like them again. It's one of those things that, again, I'm jealous of our ancestors, that they were able to see the nomad horsemen in action and we never will. There's no video. There's no photographs. We have descriptions, but you can't imagine how these people rode. They would put their little children on the backs of these horses when they could just stand. Just barely stand, and now they're riding. Their whole culture revolved around competitions for who was the best rider. When you think about being a little child and playing baseball or soccer or something, these people were playing games on the horses. You ended up creating a creature that the settled states around them created a legend out of. The legend of the centaur, the half-man, half-horse. That's the way these settled societies saw these amazing natural horsemen. What's more, you'll notice that the centaur has a bow. That is the other thing that the steppe people based their society on. They were archers. From horseback. Archers of a kind that we've never seen and will never see again. There was a, I want to say National Geographic, but it might have been a Nova special a while back, that was showing a competition in Mongolia involving Mongolian women who were riding horses and um, doing archery target practice. And of course, the reason that the filmmakers went there to shoot this is because what these Mongolian women were doing on horseback was astounding. They would ride past the target at full gallop, 40, 50 yards away from the target. They would do something that the American Plains Indians would do too, which is another sign of how environment impacts culture. You see a lot of similarities between people that live on the plains in the Americas and the people who live on the plains of Russia and Mongolia. These Mongolian women would slide down on the far side of the horse, away on the opposite side of the horse from the target, and they would shoot at the target from under the horse's chin at a full gallop. Now try to envision this for a second. If you were fighting an enemy that was shooting back at you, the Mongolian women had put themselves almost entirely behind the horse's body. You could almost not hit them 
with any sort of bow fire or gunfire or whatever you were using. And yet these Mongolian women would shoot from under the horse's neck and hit the target darn near every time. Bullseye. Now, understand that these Mongolian women are but a distant shadow of what their ancestors were and could do. They're doing something to recreate as a hobby almost what their ancestors did. Now imagine the people that put their children on the horses the minute they could stand, who rode in the saddle 24-7 and who fought like that. We will not see their like again. An amazing people. Now, with the bow, the steppe people are said to be able to shoot birds out of the sky in flight. They could shoot at least 12 arrows a minute. They were famous for something that's come down in history to be known as the Parthian shot, which was to, while galloping at full speed away from your opponent, to turn around in the saddle and shoot behind the horse, over the horse's back at your pursuing enemy. And the chroniclers are very clear that it was not unusual for the steppe archers to hit their enemy right between the eyes while galloping at full speed away from them. The steppe peoples were ambidextrous with the bow. They could shoot with either hand equally. They were amazing human beings. And they're really an extinct species of people, if you want to think about it that way. You might say an extinct culture, but really to me, it's almost a different kind of human being. Ask the Roman who encountered the Hun or the Chinese chronicler who encountered the Xiongnu, whether or not they were part of the same species as those centaurs. Now, it's also worth noticing that the middle of the steppe was kind of like a black hole as far as history went. Because what we know about these people comes to us from the settled societies that had contact with them. But there were tribes in the middle of the steppe that weren't connected to any peoples who wrote. And if you think about to keep with this alien theme, the dark side of the moon for a minute, and how you can send a spacecraft to the moon and it'll be transmitting information back to the earth and then it'll go behind the dark side of the moon and you won't hear from it again until it emerges on the other side. That's a little like what the step was in the, in the middle of it. Because oftentimes we would hear about some people from the Chinese who would then move westward, and they disappear from history for a while. And then eventually they emerge on the other side of the moon, and the Romans will pick up their history a couple hundred years later, or the Middle Eastern peoples will, or the Indians will. It would not be wrong to think about the steppe like an ocean. I've actually heard people describe it that way, in the same way that an ocean is like a featureless piece of terrain that you can see forever. The steppe is kind of like that. And oftentimes you would get these peoples that would appear and, and there would be a ripple effect across the whole steppe. Some ancient chroniclers have compared the area around Inner, Inner Mongolia to a womb of nations. Now that's a term that Western chroniclers used to use for Scandinavia. They would say that Scandinavia was a womb of nations in ancient times because these tribes seem to just spring up out of Scandinavia. You can think of the Goths or the Vikings, for example, and then just emerge out of nowhere, seemingly, go into the settled areas and spread 
fire, terror, culture, and diversity amongst the peoples of the settled societies. Well, some chroniclers have compared Inner Mongolia to a womb of nations where periodically new and more alien races would pop up. And when they did, they would push all of the earlier races, usually westward, in a domino sort of fashion. Again, think of it like a wave that starts in Mongolia and moves westward across the steppe and eventually breaks on these settled societies it runs into, whether it's European societies, Middle Eastern societies, Indian society, Chinese society. And this is a, um, a historical phenomenon that is a huge factor in world history, this domino effect of pushing the tribes that had been in place earlier uh, continually westward. Some new tribe appears in Mongolia, they fight their neighbors, they defeat them, the neighbors move west, defeat the tribe that was there, and you get this domino effect. That's how the Huns eventually ended up in Europe. And then they pushed the Gothic peoples uh, into Rome. I mean, you could easily say that this domino effect from the steppe was the reason, the cause of the collapse of the Roman Empire, among others. And it's something that is a constant in steppe history. For the entire history of the steppe until the last two or three hundred years, new peoples were created in this womb of nations area, which continually pushed peoples that had been around longer westward. As a matter of fact, the first steppe peoples that we hear from in written history, the Scythians, the father of history, Herodotus, writes that that's exactly why they were appearing in the known world that he was writing about. They were pursuing a tribe called the Cimmerians that were in the region before them. And the Scythians themselves were being pushed by stronger tribes of Saka and Sarmatians behind them, who were in turn being pushed by stronger tribes going all the way back to Inner Mongolia. The uh, Assyrians, the greatest military empire of their time, were the first to write about these Scythians, they call them the Ishkazai, I believe is the proper pronunciation. The Bible, written around the same time, the Old Testament, talks about them, and many scholars have identified the Scythian peoples with uh, the biblical Gog and Magog. Eventually, the Assyrians were defeated by a coalition of these steppe peoples, the Scythians, the Medes, and some others. Now, let's talk about the Scythians for a minute, since they sort of form ground zero for what we know about the steppe culture, which, as I said, remained remarkably similar throughout most of human history. The Scythians were fearsome, almost otherworldly to the peoples that encountered them. They took enemy scalps. They often made clothing out of them, sew the human scalps together to make a cloak. They were headhunters. They delighted in taking heads. Matter of fact, one of the customs the Scythians were known for was making drinking cups out of the skulls of their enemies, sometimes gold-encrusted drinking cups out of the skulls of their enemies. They were known, according to the father of history, Herodotus, to pass these skulls around to visitors uh, and explain who these skulls belonged to and what became of them and laugh about their fate a little bit. And to give you an idea of the continuity of steppe culture, the Russians are writing about Cumans and Pechenegs in the 1100 AD period who are still making drinking cups out of the heads of their enemies. So you get this 
feeling that the Scythians were the fathers of the steppe culture, but they weren't. Inherited it from some earlier people of whom we do not know. The Scythians drank the blood of the first enemy they killed in combat, according to Herodotus. Again, something that other steppe peoples did. They used human skins as napkins and decorations for their arrow quivers and other objects. They tattooed themselves with weird creatures and mosaics, fascinating-looking creatures, these Scythians. And we know that Herodotus wasn't lying or exaggerating about the lifestyle of the Scythians because the archaeological evidence backs up what he said. Like I said, the Scythians were not writers. They weren't writing about their enjoyment of taking heads. But you can find the tombs of these peoples all over the Russian steppe. They're called kurgans. And I've seen pictures showing the steppe off in the distance, and you can see these kurgans, which are giant mounds of earth, off in the distance, dotting the plain. Well, one of the fascinating things about the tombs of the steppe people are that the way that they were constructed, very often moisture would get in right after the burial and would freeze and stay frozen up until modern times. The so-called ice mummies are steppe people. National Geographic has done some wonderful things on them because when you find these tombs, they are like opening a time capsule that's been in your freezer. Everything in the tomb that normally would have disintegrated because of time has been frozen. You've heard stories maybe of them finding frozen woolly mammoths with the skin and the hair still on and they can take the DNA and play around with it. Well, that's what these tombs are like that they find on the Russian steppe and the Mongolian steppe. One of the things, too, that is brutally apparent when you find these tombs are that lots of people and animals sometimes died in order to send the deceased off the right way. In one of these tombs, they found 360 horses who had been ritually slaughtered to go to the afterlife with the king who was buried in the tomb. And sometimes they would ritually kill the retinue of the leader who died. Some of these tombs have horses that have been staked into the ground so that they're standing up looking like they're running. And then men are sometimes staked on top of the horses with the stake running through both of them, looking like, you know, they're actually riding the horses. Think about a carousel or a merry-go-round. And they have been called spectral riders is what one archaeological excavator called them. And how weird it must be to open up a tomb and see all of these skeletons of horses with riders around them staked into the ground, still protecting the life of their dead king. Not only that, oftentimes one of the wives of the dead king would be ritually killed and put in the tomb with the dead leader. And all of this, by the way, except of course for the horses, appears to have been voluntary. It's believed that, for example... The wife of the dead king was being given a compliment by being the one chosen to go to the afterlife with him. Maybe he had several wives, and you get to be the favorite if you're the one chosen to be killed and buried with them. The graves often contain lots of gold. 
if they haven't been plundered in antiquity. The Scythians loved gold. The uh, wood objects that have been found, again, wood would have disintegrated had it not been frozen in ice, um, show a sophisticated culture. Something, again, not given proper credit by the settled writers who thought these people subhuman. Had we not found these ice tombs, we would have a more negative view of the steppe people. The ice tombs give us an idea of their artistic ability, the quality of their lives in a way that the writings of the Chinese and the Romans and the Indians and the Persians do not give us. In addition, one of the most intriguing finds in these ice tombs are the fact that the bodies of the deceased have not disintegrated either. You can go and see the skins of these people and the wonderful, beautiful tattoos that cover them sometimes. That's how we know about their tattoos. We have found the bodies that have been mummified by the ice and photographs have been taken. It's fascinating. Now, there's other things that the tombs in ice have confirmed that the father of history, Herodotus, said about these people, about their strange customs. One of them is the fact that the Scythians, at least, and probably many of the other steppe people too, were users of hashish and marijuana. Herodotus wrote about something he called a vapor bath. He said that the peoples of the steppe did not bathe, but instead had a custom where they would set up a little tent, put a little brazier in the middle, sort of like a hibachi barbecue, and throw hemp and hemp seeds on the little barbecue and stay in the tent. And um, he was suggesting getting clean from a bath, you know, sweating in the tent. But it's apparent when you read Herodotus, they were enjoying themselves far too much to have it just be for bathing purposes. Herodotus didn't understand the intoxicating properties of hemp, so he didn't write about that. Yet, he did write about how much the Scythians enjoyed being intoxicated. Whether it be the use of the hashish or marijuana, which, by the way, they found bags of marijuana, pouches of them, uh, buried with the dead Scythians sometimes. In some of these tombs, it's apparent that they have left marijuana burning in the tomb when they shut the tomb up. In addition, they were huge drinkers. Again, a little bit like the Russians of today, famous drinkers. The Greeks had a saying, drinking like a Scythian, which meant getting blind drunk. The Greeks were appalled, by the way, that the Scythians did not water their wine down, but drank it straight. In addition, they drank mare's milk that had been fermented, something called kumis, and were often drunk on that. They also drank things like soma and all sorts of hallucinogenic intoxicants. It's safe to say that these Scythic people enjoyed being intoxicated and may have gone into battle that way. Now, the most intriguing part to me, I've always enjoyed military history, are the way these steppe peoples fought. And the way that the Scythians fought is pretty much the same way that the Huns fought and very similar to the way that the Mongols fought. Again, this culture that maintained a continuity from prehistoric times until relatively recent, historically speaking. The first aspect of the steppe warfare was that bow we talked about earlier. This was a weapon that the settled societies never developed. The Scythian bow, which was improved later to become 
the Parthian bow, which was improved to become the Hunnic bow, which was improved to become the Turkish bow, which was improved to become the Mongol bow, was said to be so hard to pull back that most people could not do it once. Matter of fact, the Greeks have a creation story for the Scythian people, and it involves uh, Zeus having children, which he did with regularity, and the one that fathered the peoples of Scythia was the one that could pull the bow back. These bows were harder to pull back than the English longbow. Some of them took 10 years to make. And the Scythians were the greatest archers who had ever lived. And I say that meaning that the peoples of the steppe, not just the Scythians, but the stories are amazing what they could do with this weapon. The chroniclers state that it could reach a maximum distance Maximum range of 500 yards, five football fields. That's unbelievable. Now, that was not an effective range. That was not the range that they would open fire at. But to think that they had a weapon that could reach that far in ancient times boggles the mind. Many of the steppe peoples didn't use the weapons that way. The stories of the Mongols are interesting where sometimes they would just ride across the enemy front and from point-blank range shoot at them with heavy arrows. So... The standard nomad tactics in war were to act like a swarm of bees with these horse archer cavalry. One of the um, ministers for a Chinese emperor of the Han dynasty wrote about the tactics of the Zhongnu, which were one of these terrible, almost alien steppe peoples. Um, he wrote, The Zhongnu move on the feet of swift horses. And in their breasts beat the heart of beasts. They shift from place to place as swiftly as a flock of birds, so that it is extremely difficult to corner them and bring them under control. It would not be expedient to attack the Zhongnu, better to make peace with them. There are other writings from the Romans which talk about how the Huns would use lassos to throw over their enemies and drag them away, again, giving them an almost otherworldly quality. The main tactic of the steppe peoples from time immemorial, their signature tactic, was something historians call the feigned flight. The feigned flight was to pretend to run away, sometimes uh, sending picked bodies of troops to engage the enemy, then at a signal, turn and flee in horror, sometimes even putting on a perfect act. Usually, the enemy would pursue them, thinking that they had just defeated the steppe peoples. And when they were disorganized and tired, the fleeing steppe troops would turn around. Sometimes they had just led the enemy into an ambush. Other times they simply were less tired and disorganized, and they would turn on them and destroy them. There are chroniclers who say, do not pursue the Tartars who flee in battle. That was another name, generic name, given to a lot of steppe people, the Tartars. Because, of course, they'll turn around in their saddle and shoot you while you're chasing them. With deadly accuracy. Now, most of the steppe soldiers, steppe warriors were horse archers, light cavalry horse archers, as we talked about. But most of these tribes had a, a small core of nobility, maybe you could think of them like knights, who were armored 
who carried heavier weaponry, sometimes long lances, who would be used at the last stage of battle to finish off an enemy that had already been tired and demoralized by the horse archers. It's where you get some of the wonderful armor of the steppes. The Mongols, uh, the pinnacle of steppe warfare development, had a rather large core of these uh, heavy cavalry with them. Now, it should be pointed out that the steppe peoples were incomparably brutal. And I don't want to get into reasons why they might have been brutal, except that perhaps it had something to do with their lifestyle. I've read historians who suggest that because they were used to killing animals all day long as part of their lifestyle, these herders, that killing didn't feel unnatural to them, but they killed on scales that um, are hard to understand. When the Mongols took Baghdad in the 13th century, they killed, executed, between 200,000 and 800,000 people. They killed all the dogs and cats. The population of Baghdad only recovered its formal le former levels about 100 years ago. The peoples who were most hurt by the Mongols carry in their souls the memories of their brutality. And the Mongols were just like the Huns, just like Sarmatians, just like the Scythians when it came to their brutality. Now, the Scythians we mentioned earlier as one of the earliest people to come out of the steppe that we know about, that we have records about. The Chinese were writing about the Xiongnu at about the same time, maybe a tiny bit later than the Scythians' first appearance in history. So you have the Chinese writing about their major steppe enemy, and the Assyrians and the biblical chroniclers, and the Persians and the Greeks writing about the Scythians in the West. The reason the Chinese built the Great Wall of China was to deal with the incursions of the Xiongnu. Now, there were other peoples, though. Eventually, the Scythians were pushed out of their traditional area in southern Russia, about 200 miles south of Kiev would probably be the limits of their range. They were pushed out of that area by a tribal confederacy called the Sarmatians. Now, the Sarmatians were a lot like the Scythians. One of the things they're known for, though, that's kind of fascinating, is their women fought. The legend of the Amazon is now pretty confidently traced to the tendency of Sarmatian women to fight in battle. There's a tradition that says that Sarmatian women were not allowed to marry until they had killed a foe in battle, and supposedly there were old-made Sarmatian women who had never managed to accomplish that feat. But imagine how dominating the steppe tribes already were in terms of the proportion of their citizenry that they could put into warfare. Every male was a warrior, for example. There were no farmers. There were no scholars. There were, there, they didn't siphon off large portions of the population to other endeavors. Every male was a warrior, and in the Sarmatian nation, maybe every female was. That's a lot of people you can put in the saddle. They have found graves, by the way, with Sarmatian women in full battle array. Weapons, armor, everything. Now, after the Sarmatians, you, um, you have periods of other Sarmatian peoples, like the Alans and others, but then the next major peoples to emerge from the steppe were the Huns. 
And some historians, especially historians from uh, the past, have suggested that these Huns who emerged in the West in the 5th century AD, well, actually late 4th century AD, were really the Xiongnu people that the Chinese had been fighting for so long. Once again, in that area of Inner Mongolia, that womb of nations, new peoples had sprung up. The Xiongnu had been defeated by one of them and moved west. For a while, they were in that black hole, the dark side of the moon of the inner steppe, lost to historical contact, and then, according to some historians, reappear in Europe with Roman chroniclers writing about God's punishment on Rome for its sinning ways. The Huns pushed the Gothic people, who were a Germanic uh, group of people, Visigoths, Ostrogoths, Vandals, all those people were of similar stock. They from the womb of nations in Scandinavia, by the way. They were terrified of the Huns, and it was their retreating from the Hunnic menace that pushed them into Rome, eventually leading to the Battle of Adrianople, where the Romans were defeated by the Goths, and then a few years later, the sacking of the Eternal City of Rome by the Goths, who really probably would not have even been there had they not had the Huns at their rear threatening them. Again, that, that movement of peoples that continued a domino sort of effect. The Huns pushed to the western steppe from more powerful tribes behind them, and they pushing the Goths into the only area the Goths could run to, which was Roman territory. And the Huns were particularly scary for a number of things that they did that we're not sure that other steppe tribes did. There are skulls of Huns that you can see where they have massively elongated heads. And it turns out that's because they practice something that's called cranial deformation, where their mothers would bind the child's heads from a very early age so that they grew into this elongated sort of skull that looks like it's from another planet. They're said to have cut their children's faces at a very early age to prevent a beard from growing. That's where you get the scars from. The Romans thought the Huns... Uh, to be non-human, and the Chinese thought the Xiongnu to be non-human as well. Now, the most important people, though, I think, to emerge from the steppe were the people that, the major people that came after the Huns, and these were the Turks. Again, they sprouted up from that womb of nations in Inner Mongolia, some of them having blonde hair, you don't think of the Turkic peoples today like that, and a dizzying array of tribes ended up as part of this Turkic peoples, you can name Avars and Bulgars and Guz and Khazars and a number of other peoples. But the Turks probably had the longest and most profound impact on human history of all these peoples to emerge from the steppe. If for no other reason, then there's a country called Turkey today because of it. Matter of fact, you can easily consider that the Turks were the reasons for the Crusades. In 1071, the Turks defeated the Byzantines at a battle called Manzikert. The Turkish uh, Khan Alp Arslan destroyed the Byzantine army. The Byzantines were the ones safeguarding Europe, you could say, from the tribal peoples of the steppe simply pouring into parts of Europe. When the Byzantines were defeated at Manzikert and their army destroyed, that's when they sent out a call to Western Europe asking for help. And the response was the Crusades, not that long afterwards. 
So you could make a case that not only did the steppe people basically destroy Rome or cause it to be destroyed, they took over China many times. Many of the Chinese dynasties are non-native steppe dynasties, but they probably were the reason for the Crusades as well. Now, the final people from the steppe were the Mongols. And that's not really true. There were people after the Mongols, but the Mongols were the high watermark. They are, in my opinion, the greatest army that ever existed. The most brutal, the most devastating, and the most terrifying. One author put it into terms that boggle the mind when they pointed out that at one point in Mongol history, in the 13th century, the Mongols were fighting both Teutonic knights in Europe and Japanese samurai in Japan at the same time, and the Japanese samurai and Teutonic knights had no idea that each other existed, and yet that is the range and scope of the Mongol operations, that they're fighting both these people on opposite sides of the globe who have no idea each other exists. And the Mongols, and I said that's going to be a show one day, just the Mongols, but when they broke up their world empire, broke it up into the Golden Horde in Russia, who played a huge role in Russian history that they're still living with today, the Ilkhanids in Persia, and the Yuan dynasty in China, led for a time by Kublai Khan, that the end of the great steppe invasions had come. There were others, people like Tamerlane later on, Mongols continued to be a problem for China up until like the 17th century almost. But the last time we hear about the steppe horse archers in any sort of capacity was from Napoleon when his French Grand Army attacked Russia. And the Russians and the Russian Tsar called upon all the peoples of Russia to defend against the French menace. And some of the people that showed up, the Ossetians, who are said to be the descendants of the Scythians, showed up in chainmail armor carrying bows. The French called them Cupids. Now, they had no impact on the French, but imagine in 1812 running into guys on horses in chainmail armor and bows. Now, there were a bunch of settled societies that ended up being run by steppe overlords for one time or another. The Parthian Empire in Persia was a steppe dynasty that had taken control of Persia for quite a while. India, all of northern India, was subject to Saka tribes and Kushan tribes uh, for a time. China has several dynasties that were nothing more than steppe dynasties. The Chinese bureaucracy and people continued to function. The overlords were Kishan Lao or Mongols or Xiongnu. Russia, of course, was the golden horde for hundreds of years. Look at their history. It's absolutely intertwined with the steppe peoples. Persia at times, subject, of course, as we said, Parthia itself. Uh, the Seljuk Turks controlled the Middle East for a long time. The steppe peoples have managed to have an impact on modern society that's hard to quantify. How about just a partial list of some of these steppe peoples whose names have come down to us through history, usually names that they did not call themselves, but that, that they were identified by their um, settled enemies? 
the Scythians. And by the way, before I even go down this list, it should be noted that these are mostly tribal confederacies, which means there are lots of little tribes who fall under the heading of these larger tribes. You have the Scythians, the Sarmatians, the Huns, the Xiongnu, the Wu Sun, who were one of these tribes of Caucasians living on the Chinese border, the Yuchi, the Kushans, the Jerkids, the Kishans, the Avars, the Turks, Mongols, Magyars, Saka, Cuman, Khazars, Guz, Bulgars, Alans, the list goes on. These aliens from the steppe continually being thrusts out of the womb of nations in Inner Mongolia like lava from a volcano, one right after another, each pushing the tribes that came before them into the settled societies like waves breaking on a beach. And eventually, it ended. Guns played a very big role in this, by the way. The disunity of the tribes played a very big role in this. When the Russians moved east and south in the 16th century, and the Chinese went on the counteroffensive into Mongolia in that same time period, the power of the steppe was basically broken, and it hasn't risen again. The horse archers have died out. Those people that ride today in Mongolia are but shadows of their forebears. And as I said, we will never see their like again. We will never see one of the Mongols firing a bow and knocking birds out of the sky in flight. We will never see what it was like to face one of these steppe armies in battle, something our ancestors dreaded. And yet, I imagine, if we could talk to one of our ancestors, that they would think we were crazy for wanting to see them. Because many of the people who faced nomads in battle didn't live to tell about it. These aliens oftentimes came to the settled societies like H.G. Wells' War of the World aliens. And when the Mongols, for example, took Baghdad and exterminated the population, they left a lasting memory that I imagine many who experienced it would say to us it's better left in history.